So there's something that we are hoping happens, that we by faith believe happens whenever we open God's Word together on a Sunday morning. Our desire is for the Spirit of God to be active through the Word of God to bring about conviction and of sin, repentance, transformation. Our belief here at GLC, right, is that the reason that our time together in the Word is central isn't because of the preacher. You know, it isn't because of the man who stands behind the pulpit, but, but it's because of what we have on the pulpit, uh, the Word of God. We believe that the normative way in which the, the Spirit works is through His Word uh, to do this in our hearts. And so, um, some of us are here this morning. A lot of people texted me saying, can't make it in, but we're, we're watching from home. But the task remains the same. Like, we... We really want to pray, even in difficult passages to understand, even when we get to passages in Scripture that are disputed from among Orthodox, Bible-believing, Christ-loving Christians, we, we desire for the Spirit to speak to us in a way that brings the gospel to bear in our hearts and minds, right? So um, in order for that to happen, we're reliant on Him. I think the text is going to make that case of reliance even stronger this morning. And so let me pray, and then we'll get into that. Right now, we need to pray. We need to ask for help. So God, uh, this morning, as we look into your word, we pray that you give us eyes to see. Are we just saying that we never knew the way on our own, that our, our foolish hearts were darkened, that it's, it's by your mercy and grace that we are able to know you, that we're able to see and understand what, what you have to say to your people. And so uh, this morning, God, we pray that you'd show us Christ on the pages of Revelation 20, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week I said, right, I said that we had to take one sermon on chapter 20 and divide it into two parts, right? Because I had this manuscript that was 14 and a half, 15 pages long, single-spaced, typically like I'm six and a half to seven and a half pages, right? So I knew I had to Right? I had to either massively edit to the point where I felt like I couldn't get through what we needed to get through, or I had to cut it in half. So that's what we did. Um, last week, I sp- the reason for this is that last week I spent most of the time giving you some of the larger theological background of these four major views, known as um, views on what's known as the millennial kingdom. Right? And I think there's good reason for doing this. I talked about that last week. Um, I think there's, this is really for our good. If you want to hear more about those four views... I'm not going to really talk about it much this morning, right? So um, I, I talked last week about some of the reasons why I have difficulty with all of them to a certain extent, but, but three of them I have a harder time with. One of them called historical premillennialism. That's the one that I, I hold to. That's the view that I ascribe to. I'll have a few rejoinders to what I said last week, but you know, if you have questions about those views, I'm not going to really circle back and define them this morning. And what's, hard, what's been hard about preaching through Revelation is um, each week I'm like, man, so some people are going to have missed the last week or the last few weeks, and then they're going to come. So i got to find a way to make every, every week, i got to find a way to describe everything again. And we're just not going to be able to do that every week, right? So my encouragement to you is, I'm going to do my best to explain as we go, but go back and listen because Revelation is this crazy hyperlinked book that's just... It's interpreting itself throughout, right? So John is referring to things that he's about to talk about. John is referring to things that has been going on throughout his writing. 
Um, this is a very unique book in which it's hard to kind of just come and pick up where we left off. So I, I do encourage you, if you have questions, come to Q&A, uh, listen back to last week. I, I really do think it will be helpful to you. Um, so now I want to get to the text. And here we have the second half of one long sermon. And I have a few rejoinders to what I said last week. You know, a few clarifications, but um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what we talked about last week. I, I, I think what we need to do is pick up where we left off by way of an illustration. So if you remember, our, here's our outline for this one long sermon. Our outline is that John wants to fill his readers with the hope that they have in Christ, and in particular with the, the hope that they have in Christ's future coming, his return to this broken world by reminding us of Three realities over which Jesus has ultimate power and authority. So just as heat has ultimate power over cold, and I promise you, Minnesota, it's true. And just, just as light has ultimate victory over darkness, anytime light comes in, it pierces darkness. Darkness doesn't make light go away. In the same way, the risen Christ has ultimate power over Satan. He has ultimate power over the demonic realm, demonic forces. He has ultimate power over salvation. And he has ultimate power over judgment. As creator, he is the judge over his created order. So what I like about this outline is regardless of what your view is on this thing called the millennial kingdom, all four views, I think, can find this in the text this morning. And we all have enormous agreement here. The risen Christ has ultimate power over Satan, power over salvation, power over judgment. So um, last week, we talked about his power over Satan. And I, what, what, what my aim is this morning is to show you how, how that view, not the view on the millennium and what that has to say about Satan's binding in the thousand years, but your view on Satan, your view on whether or not Christ has power over him, that view, I want to show you how it's related to these issues that we now open up of salvation and judgment that we're turning our attention to right now. Like, what does one have to do with the other? I think, I think it's bound up. What you believe about whether or not Christ has authority over Satan speaks volumes as to whether or not you think we need salvation, whether or not judgment is necessary in this world. So um, let's look at the text again. So as you know from last week, I'm arguing for sequence in the text. That is to say, I think that what's happening in 19 happens first and then 20 follows after that. Um, let's, Let's put our noses back at the end of chapter 19, if you have your Bibles open, so that I can kind of just quickly run through this. Jesus returns in 19, this glorious return. On a white horse, he defeats the armies of the beast and the false prophet. He knows, um, uh, he, or he throws the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire, giving them final uh, and eternal judgment, okay? And then, verses 1 through 3, he binds Satan, throws him into the bottomless pit, Seals it up so that he can't deceive the nations any any longer as we've seen him doing throughout the book. So Jesus pretty clearly has authority over Satan at his return. But there's this view from within contemporary culture. I I hinted at it today. This is where we um, ended our time last week. There's this view that essentially positions good and evil, right and wrong, chaos and order, God and Satan, typically seen as symbolizing uh, this, this eternal struggle between good and bad, uh, and it places these things side by side. All right. The idea is that these two realities are co-equal 
to a degree. That there's a fine line between them. So you, you'll see in this view, uh, you'll see it in various ways if you study Greek mythology. There are kind of like, there are kind of good gods and mostly bad gods in Greek mythology. And from within the kind of good gods, they're still, they're still pretty unstable. The, the kind of good gods of Greek mythology are pretty unstable. The mostly bad gods sometimes do good things that surprise you, right? As you look through, so you see it in Greek mythology. You certainly see it in Eastern paganism, in which you, you have like trickster gods, um, other gods being more loyal. But it's mostly seen in the Western world, either in like New Ageism, in which you feel like in some sense you have to position yourself between the two in order to channel the strengths of each, or e- even more so now in our, in our secular age, where we see it are those who want to argue that because this is the case, because there's this internal conflict between chaos and order, good and evil, you must embrace the conflict so that good can win out in the end. Right? And probably the most influential voice along these lines, I mentioned it last week briefly, is that of the Canadian scholar Jordan Peterson um, in his most well-known book, 12 Rules for Life. This is what he writes. He says, the famous yin and yang symbols of the Taoists, capture this beautifully. Being for the Taoists, reality itself is composed of two opposing principles. Yin and yang are more accurately understood as chaos and order. The Taoist symbol is a circle, you've all seen it, enclosed, enclosing twin serpents head to tail. The black serpent, chaos, has a white dot on its head. The white serpent, order, has a black dot on its head. This is because chaos and order are interchangeable, as well as eternally juxtaposed. Now listen to what he argues here. He says, there's nothing so certain that it cannot vary. Even the sun itself has cycles of instability. Likewise, there's nothing so mutable that it can't be fixed. Every revolution produces a new order. Every death is simultaneously a metamorphosis. So he's saying, there's nothing so good that it's not at least to a degree unstable. Right? And there's nothing so bad that it can't be, to, to a certain extent, redeemed. Now, the, the more you read JP, the more you come to understand this is not a guy who's arguing some humanity is generally good and loving version of modern liberalism. He's not. Like, he very much rightly sees the depravity of man. He brings it up again and again in his writings. At the same time, there's some, I believe, self-contradiction here because the idea that he's advancing here is that because good and evil, right and wrong, chaos and order, and really Christ and Satan is the symbol he uses for that. He says it's the battle between human history, between these opposing realities, the struggle. Because that's such a fine line, you're the deciding vote. You need to fight. You need to fight yourself in many respects. You need to fight chaos. You need to to fight laziness. You need to embrace responsibility. And you need to do the hard things, not the easy things. And it's in doing those things that you'll find your way to order good. And in many ways, like if you listen to Peterson teach on the Bible, he'd say, in many ways, this is what salvation is. This is salvation, right? It gives you meaning. It gives you purpose. How do we respond to that? Two ways. First, a lot of the things I just said there are good things. Like, of course, it's good to embrace responsibility, to do the hard things. You do need to fight yourself. You need to fight the inclinations of your heart because oftentimes your heart is an unreliable guide. I think a lot of the things that he says along those lines are true, but but listen, if we're the deciding vote between good and evil, if our work is is what determines which side wins, I mean, we're in a lot of trouble. 
The argument places an enormous weight on people that they're actually not able to bear, and then people just buckle under the weight. I would argue that Peterson himself, over the last couple of years, has buckled under the weight of this. If, if the depravity of man is true, then we need more than an invitation to just work and try really hard to overcome. Right? If what we're saying about the inability of mankind to do good is true, then we need more than an invitation to do good. We need, we need more than that for salvation from a Savior. And not only that, but the text this morning, I think, argues in a powerful way that at Christ's return, we'll see firsthand, even under the most ideal circumstances, we cannot overcome. Right? So second, then, that means the way you view God's relationship to this created order, the way you view God's authority over his authority over the satanic realm really does change the way you understand how transformation works. Like, the Christian view on this is really liberating because, like, this view, it's, if, you, if you're into philosophy, it's known as ontological dualism, and, it's, and, and there's symbols of it all over, all over uh, culture, even in children's cartoons. So, it, like, it's not that Jesus is on this shoulder and Satan is on this shoulder, and occasionally they have witty banter back and forth, you know, but, and between them you're looking all confused, and you're like, oh, wait, i got to think, you know. Um, and then you're the deciding vote between them. That's... That's that idea of ontological dualism. Oh, I've got these two voices. That's not, this, this isn't it. It's that Jesus has ultimate power, ultimate authority, and certain victory over Satan. If that were the case, you're in a lot of trouble. But Christ has all power. He has power over Satan now, as we've seen throughout Revelation. He will have power over Satan at his return. And the idea that there's struggle between Christ and Satan, the idea that there's wrestling, the idea that there's struggle, is absurd by the time we get to chapters 19 and 20, the, the idea of struggle is utter nonsense. There's no struggle, and we'll see that firsthand. So the question, there's struggle between us and Satan, but not between Christ and Satan. So, okay, the question becomes then, what hope do we have if that's true? What hope do we have if, on the one hand, we can't save ourselves, and the human heart is wicked beyond repair, but Christ is all-powerful and all-good? So then, how does that spell out hope for the Christian. Well, that's what we see in our next two reminders in the text. So God has authority over Satan. Correspondingly, now we see he has authority over salvation. Let's just look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones. Seated on them were those uh, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received a mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, so there's a lot to be said here. But, um, but what should shine through primarily as we explain this text is the clear authority Jesus has at his return to save. To save. This section is primarily about salvation and even future glorification for those who put their faith in what Christ has done to save. So it begins with John seeing these thrones in, in this kingdom. And seated on these thrones are those who he gave authority to judge. The question is, interpretively, who are they? And the answer is, I'm not entirely sure. 
there are, and I'm going to say that a lot in 20, there, there are a few options. One is that this is the heavenly tribunal that we've read about before, simply continuing to reign from the heavenlies, right? So here you have the elders and the four living creatures on thrones with the authority to judge, right? And, and there's, there are some good arguments for this uh, to an extent, but I think the heavenly tribunal portion of it Heavenly thrones, I think there's good arguments for. But the, the tribunal part, I don't see any reason in the text for this to be the case. So I have a harder time with that. Second, you have the view that these are, are the martyrs. The martyrs are in view here. Those specifically who have been killed for the sake of the gospel. And that's something of an extra blessing then for, during the millennial kingdom. Again, whether you believe it's we're in the millennial kingdom now, that's millennials, or that the millennial kingdom... Uh, is ushered in by the church post-millennial, or, and, and then Jesus comes, or um, Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom pre-millennial, right? So regardless of what your view is here, when you see uh, these martyrs coming, there's, we, do, we, we do see something of an extra blessing in the millennial kingdom because of their sacrifice. That's the argument, that they're given special authority to rule. And I think that's possible. Certainly we see a reference to martyrs in the context, right? It says... The souls of those beheaded. So are we talking about, are we talking about the tribunal? Are we talking about martyrs? I think there's a stronger argument still. And that's the third view, which is that here you have a reference to all believers. And this is a reference to all believers. And not only do I think that's in keeping with the context of the chapter, you guys, this is the focus of the book, right? Um, the point here is to draw a contrast between All believers at the beginning of these thousand years, again, not to be taken literally on my view, just an extended period of time of Jesus' rule, what all believers experienced during, uh, before that thousand years, and contrasting that with all unbelievers at the end of these thousand years and what they experience. So why do I take this to be a reference to all believers? Well, look at the text again. Second part of verse 4. Also I saw the souls of those who've been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The ones doing the reigning, according to the text, are those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark. And who is that? Well, my argument throughout Revelation is that's all Christians throughout all ages. Right? That's all Christians. Remember, um, as I've argued, Revelation, I don't think is teaching that some people in a very specific future cultural moment, thousands of years removed from when he wrote this to its original audience, will receive a mark on their hands or foreheads in some literal way, and, and some people will not during that time. I don't think so. I think it's teaching everyone has a mark. You're either marked with the seal of God, or you're marked with the mark of the beast. I've talked about this a lot. All right, apocalyptic literature, very black and white. And so I think that's what it's saying here. All Christians are raised following the return of Jesus Christ in uh, chapter 19. So now this is where, even from, we're going to get into the weeds, but listen, even from within the varying positions, there's a lot of disagreement. So historic pre-mills, who all agree that Jesus returns, then establishes his kingdom, they disagree on the nature of this resurrection with with each other. Okay, okay. Amillennials, who believe that we're currently in the millennium, they disagree with each other too. So the question is, what kind of resurrection is this? What does they came to life or were raised or were resurrected mean, depending on your translation, right? The word resurrection. What does it mean? Well, so the Amill position claims it's a spiritual resurrection. They're all agreed on this point. 
It's a, it's a spiritual resurrection, but there's disagreement about what... Some of them argue, you know, it's talking about conversion. It's resurrection in the sense that some people come to faith. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. So it's talking about Christians who, who come to trust in Christ, and in that sense, their resurrection. Some of them say, no, um, it can't mean that because this is talking about a resurrection. This is probably talking about the intermediate state in which Christians who die are absent from the body but present with the Lord. So that is to say, throughout church history, since the time... Uh, since the cross till uh, his second coming, Christians pass away, but to be absent with the body, spirit with the Lord, their spirit, their soul is resurrected to uh, be with Christ in the heavenlies. I go back and forth on which one of those two might be stronger. They both have strengths, but in the end, I, I find both problematic because this word for resurrected came, came to life. It literally means came to life. It does not anywhere else in the Bible, including the very next verses on Mills agree, mean spiritual resurrection. It always means physical, even in the next verse, one verse over. And as much as I think like, you know, and it's not just, it's not just the Amel view, post, and even some historic pre's, they say this is a spiritual resurrection. And the reason for that is like, as much as they think it's strange that there might be this period on earth where we have physical resurrected bodies walking around with unregenerate believers, I'm going to talk about this in a minute who do not have resurrected bodies. So you get into 20, and there's some weird thoughts about what this might look like. Glorified resurrected bodies walking around in, the, in this, you know, this uh, millennial kingdom alongside of those who don't have resurrected bodies. I agree it seems strange. We'll get into that objection. But I also think it's, it's strange, or should be strange in our minds, is the idea that in a passage where two resurrections are mentioned, where certain people are resurrected in the first resurrection... And the rest of the dead are resurrected only at the end of a specified period after the first. If in that passage, the first resurrection can be understood, same word, as spiritually rising with Christ in some sense, uh, while the second one means physically ri- rising into resurrection bodies, with no clues in between, no clues in the context of the passage that would lead me to believe that the same word used twice, back to back, should be used differently, I, I also have to acknowledge that that feels strange. And I think one of the only reasons, perhaps, to hold to that view is the objection that otherwise we can't really imagine what we're reading. It's like, man, that seems really weird. And yet, had Jewish people heard that when the advent, the coming of their Messiah finally arrived, that it would not lead to the new heavens and the new earth, but rather an age in which His Spirit would bring people to life as they awaited final consummation for thousands of years, they would have thought it strange. In fact, they did. They did. And we'll talk about that more too. So I don't think we want to make decisions about words that are used in this text that everywhere else mean physical resurrection. And listen, this is a great time of year to pick up a book by N.T. Wright called Resurrection of the Son of God. Very thick, very cogent argument for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus as we approach Easter. I think it could be an encouragement to you. But he argues very adamantly in that book that to, to take this word resurrection and to make it not mean physical resurrection because everywhere else in the Bible, that's what the word means. He says it's to strain it beyond the breaking point. All right, so, and, and he's right about that. Some are arguing here for a resurrection that always means bodily and physical and it just doesn't mean that here. So I don't think we want to make those kinds of decisions on the basis of what 
might seem strange to our ears thinking through the implications of what it might look like. So the question is, how should we think of it? Then what, what, what's going on here? Well, look at verses 5 and 6. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of Christ, of, of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. What's happening here? Well, I think it's saying, and you can disagree, right? Smarter people than me disagree with me on this. I think it's saying that when Jesus returns in 19, he will defeat the armies that oppose his rule led by the beast and the false prophet. He'll then throw the false prophet and the beast into the lake of the fire, final judgment for them. He binds Satan who won't share their fate. Not yet. Right? He no longer has his minions, but he won't share their fate yet. Instead, he seals them, seals them away in a bottomless pit from which he can no longer be active. And Christ will establish his rule on earth in which he will, this is what I think, raise all Christians from the dead, giving them glorified resurrection bodies, despite the fact that I have people in all three camps, historic, pre-mill, amill, post-mill, pushing back pretty hard on that. I think it's, I have a really hard time reading resurrection and not seeing glorified resurrection bodies And they will, in some sense, reign with him. And the text tells us, then, this is the first resurrection. What does John mean by that? Some people say, see, Jeremy, right there, right there. It says the first resurrection, the first one. He says it. Well, so the the question is, does he mean that this is the first resurrection, which is a spiritual resurrection for believers, whereas the second resurrection is a physical resurrection for believers? Not in Revelation 20. I don't think so. I think John is once again up to his old tricks of contrasting between those who have God's mark and those who have Satan's. In other words, you don't want to be a part of the second resurrection. Not in Revelation 20 you don't. It's leading us to to our next reality over which Jesus has authority. Look Look at the way this is phrased. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or hands, they came to life. So who's, who's the they? What am I arguing anyway? Uh, all believers. All believers. All Christians. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So that's all Christians. Then verse 5. The rest. Who's he referring to? If all Christians are raised to life, who are the rest? The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years ended. The rest of the dead are non-believers because the believers are raised. In other words, the first resurrection... In this text is the resurrection you want to be a part of. It's the resurrection of all believers. The result of that resurrection is life. The second resurrection is the one he's warning us against. Just as he warns throughout, like there's this, there's this contrast. There's this, uh, you know, you can't ride the fence between these two. It's very black and white. So the second resurrection is the rest. And the result of that resurrection is death. And that's why John says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. That's so apocalyptic, you guys. First resurrection, second death. Mark of the beast, seal of God. Like, these are the things that, are, that he's putting in front of you to say, like, do you see this? Do you want to be a part of the first resurrection or the second death? So, again, not to be a broken record. This will end eventually, okay, but... You either have God's seal or the beast's mark. You either have... You either face the beast's wrath or God's wrath. You either belong to Babylon or the New Jerusalem. Right? You, see, you get what John's doing. You either experience first resurrection unto life or second unto, resurrection unto death. This is, it's just not referring to the second resurrection later on for believers. And, and so then what you're left with arguing 
if your position is that this is a spiritual resurrection, regardless of what your view on the millennium is, if, you, if your position is that this is a spiritual resurrection, what you're left arguing is that there's a second physical resurrection later on, but the text doesn't actually say anything about it. And that feels like special pleading to me, because what you're saying essentially is, okay, first resurrection is spiritual, though the word never means that, and the second resurrection is physical, which that's what the word normally means, but that refers to non-believers, and so there's a third resurrection, again what the word means, but the book of Revelation is silence about it in chapter 20, and that feels like a tough argument to make. Now admittedly, all right, one of the sticking points, messy points of my view, because no view is perfect, right, even your pastor's. Um, there are sticky points for all of them. There are problems for all of them. And that's why I've held to three of the four views uh, since graduating college, right? So, um, all right. So, yeah, there's a sticking point to all of them. And admittedly, one of them for me is this question of what it looks like for glorified... I'm going I'm to talk about a few. This isn't the only one I'm going to talk about. But one of them is this question of what it looks like for glorified, resurrected bodies to be walking around on earth raised from the dead, next to those who are unregenerate. And I acknowledge, it feels weird, it reads weird, it seems weird to our eyes and ears. Kind of a strange mixture. The thing is, as both George Ladd and D.A. Carson point out, the text doesn't give us any details about that. Like, it doesn't give us any details of where that rain will happen or how that rain will happen. And so Carson says, if you ask at this point, do they rain on the earth? The text doesn't say is this a rain from a specific place? The text doesn't say. Is this a mixture of the resurrected crowd with the unresurrected crowd? Strictly speaking, again, the text doesn't say. He says the text is more complex than that. It doesn't say. It leaves those questions answered. Now, so the, the answer to that objection on my view is, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I don't know, but I have a really hard time with interpretations that force a difference between what the same word means in two verses with no indication for it on the basis that it seems weird. So at the end of the day, along with Ladd and Carson, I kind of have to throw up my hands and say, look, I'm not sure what it looks like. I think it's a physical resurrection. I, I, think, I think it's a really hard argument against that from my perspective. It's... Um, but I'm just not sure what the reign of these believers look like, where it's located, what part of God's universe they're reigning over. It's too complex to say. So we should read our Bibles by asking, what is the text saying according to what words mean, sequence that's transpiring, all these things. And then when it comes to the details that the text doesn't include, we just say, I'm not sure. I don't know. What we shouldn't do is get so weirded out about the details that the text doesn't include is that we change up, some, we force some meanings of words that the text doesn't give us. I have more, I have more to say on that. I don't have time for it. So come talk to me at Q&A if you're curious. Um, if you have any questions about, like, specifically that objection. Okay. But regardless of your view, right, what we find here. So, and I want to say that this is true. Like, amillennials, post-millennials, uh, historic pre, dispensational pre. Everybody who holds different views will hear me say this, and all of us will yell, Amen. Jesus, upon his return, has authority over salvation. He is the resurrected one. He is the first fruits of our resurrection. The one in whom we see the hope that we have in resurrection. We don't have the ability to raise ourselves to life now or in glory because we have no such authority, right? We have no such authority. We don't have the ability to engineer a future hope by our own merits. Why? Because we have no say in what happens after death. And by the way, 
that reality that we have no say in what happens after death scares everyone. Like, if you look into culture, there's a reason why billionaires are investing so much money into elongating human life and trying to find a way to make this life eternal because they know they have no control over what happens after death. Who is in control of that? Christ is in control of that. He has authority over salvation. And thirdly then, so he has authority over Satan, authority over salvation. Thirdly, authority over judgment. This is true as well. Starting in verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Jesus returns, right? He defeats the armies that stand opposed to him. He throws the beast and the false prophets, the false prophet, into the lake of fire. A final judgment, right? A final judgment for those two. Seizes Satan, binds him for the duration of the kingdom he's established on earth. Raises all believers physically. And now, at the end of that period, he releases Satan again. On earth, uh, where he comes out to, the text says, deceive the nations one more time. Right? So, um, okay. He stirs up those who, in this period of millennial kingdom, are unregenerate. And the final and decisive battle... Not against the beast, not against the false prophet, but against Satan, the rest of mankind. Death itself is finally, judgment on death itself will finally be held. They're fully and finally defeated. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire now, according to verse 10. Not into the bottomless pit any longer, but the lake of fire with the two who were already thrown in at the end of 19. If you're persuaded that 20 doesn't follow sequentially from 19, I'm not entirely sure what you do with verse 10 where it specifically mentions the sequence. It says, Satan's now thrown where the beast and false prophet were thrown. Now, it doesn't say we're thrown in Greek. It just says Satan was, pro- was thrown where the beast and false prophet. But I agree with the way that the ESV translates this, and there are multiple places in the New Testament where this is how, it's, this is how you deal with the grammar. Satan is being thrown where the beast and the false prophet were thrown in the sequence of these two chapters of 19 and 20. Now, okay, Two more common objections to my view at this point. So that's what I think is happening in the text. But people might say, and they'd be right to say, okay, these two things. One is the idea, they're related, so I'll just unpack them both and then I'll respond a little bit. So one is the idea here that we have a second battle, battle sorry, following a, third, uh, following a first battle, rather than this day of the Lord, final battle, final judgment, that when Jesus comes, when he returns, the day of the Lord will just wipe everything out It'll be done, it'll be completed. And that's why amillennials, post, you know, amillennials in particular see uh, 19 and 20 as the same event being retold twice, right? Because the idea is, and I understand it, that the way that the Apostle Paul talks is not that there's going to be a couple of battles. The way that the Old Testament talks isn't that there's going to be a couple of battles. It's that there's a final battle, right? Okay. Second, and relatedly, they argue that the day of the Lord appears to leave nobody alive in the rest of the New Testament. Like the Apostle Paul writes 
They will not escape in uh, 1 Thessalonians. And who's the they? Seems to be everyone. I mean, I would argue that it's everyone. And yet after Jesus slays the army of the beast with the sword in 19, the rest, I think at the end of 19, pretty clearly is, it modifies armies, not everyone, not earth dwellers, right? But armies, the rest of the armies were slayed, but but okay, so after he does that, there are still non-believers who survived that, who aren't apparently a part of the beast's army, but who aren't uh, regenerate. They're not believers in Jesus. Um, into 20, and then a second battle comes in in which nobody survives. So one of my friends who holds to the amillennial position pretty routinely says, Jeremy, how many battles where nobody survives do you expect Jesus to fight here? You know, seems like a lot. And okay, he's right to say that. I hear other people making similar comments about this, saying like, all right, so you, you've got, chapter 19 feels pretty comprehensive. You've got this, the birds feasting on flesh, pecking at eyeballs, like everything seems to be finished. And all of a sudden you have this, uh, this second battle, right? Okay, so I agree that this is, you, you read what the Apostle Paul has to say about these things, and it seems like he's saying that at the return of Jesus, everything Everything will be completely done, right? In, in an instant is what it, was what it reads like. But again, both sides of this issue, and I've talked about this before, all sides of this issue are going to come to it with their proof texts. Premillennials are going to come with Isaiah 65, where it seems like he's talking about a, a long ki- a time of blessing and prosperity, a kingdom. New, it describes it as new heavens and new earth, but a kingdom in which people still die, but they live a longer time. There's, there's prosperity, there's peace, there's blessing. So premillennials will point to those passages, a few other passages, and say, look, uh, there's my proof text. And amillennials will point to passages, and postmillennials will point to passages like the Apostle Paul saying, they will not survive. And they'll say, look, there's my proof text. And the, the point isn't whether or not those passages, like the premillennial proof text, can be reconciled with an amill view, or the, the uh, amillennial proof text can be reconciled with a premill view. They can be. That's the thing. You can give a defensible amillennial argument for Isaiah 65. You can give a defensible premillennial argument for 1 Thessalonians 4. They can be reconciled. The question, first question is, what is John saying? And, and as it relates to this, I'm not as perplexed by these problems as I am with sequence and Satan and, and resurrection. For two reasons. Because one, as, as Carson points out, the Armageddon language of God's judgment in Scripture refers to a recurring judgment of sin. There's a lot of symbolism in chapter 19 that talks about uh, this recurring judgment. It's a recurring thing that happens. Bull, uh, you know, seals give way to trumpets that give way to bulls. Why? Because there's this recurring Armageddon language that our sin is continually being judged. It's recurringly being judged, and we see that language in 19. But second, we also see, I think, Two different armies and occasions. In 19, you have the army of the beast and the false prophet. There's no mention of Satan until you get to 20, where he's being seized. It's being led by different commanders. The occasion is different. And then you get to 20, and Satan's leading that army. The beast and the false prophet already are in the lake of fire. So, So it does not seem to me like the text demands that interpretation. What it seems to me like, it's a, but that's not how I thought it would go kind of argument. Which is what Jesus' disciples said after he died and rose from the dead and gave them his spirit. What does Cleopas say to Christ on the road from Emmaus? On the road to Emmaus. You know, he, he, he talks about the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. And then he says, and then he was here. We thought he was here. We thought 
But, but he couldn't be because he died, right? And we thought, and what does he say? We thought he was the one who would redeem Israel. He knew his Bible. He knew what the prophets said, but he misunderstood what the prophets said because he took that to mean that when the Messiah came, he wouldn't die. He'd, he'd lead them into peace and prosperity and, and, and usher in his kingdom. And so, so um, I think, you know, we have to be careful with it, but that's not how I thought it would go texts because the, the scripture then gives us more information here at the end of Revelation, which, by the way, is, I think, part of what, it's, what John wants to do. So let's continue, though, because the question becomes, why would he do it this way? Like, why, why doesn't Jesus just wipe everyone out at the end of 19 when he returns? That's a good question. We'll come back to that. So let's just finish real quick. Uh, Jesus' authority over judgment, second part of this. Starting in verse 11, then I, and I'm going to do most of this next week, so let me just read it. Then I saw a great white throne, and on him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. That's how you know it's the, the second resurrection here. This is not... For believers. All right, okay. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. First resurrection, second death. That's the point. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So ultimate judgment is, is given here by Christ. As creator, he gets to stand as judge over his creation. Here you have second death. Who experiences it? Those who did not experience first resurrection. Those who followed the beast rather than following God. Those who wanted to be their own Lord and Savior rather than looking to Christ as Lord and Savior. Those who thought, well, in, in this fine line between chaos and order, I can just work really hard to tip the scales in order's direction. To tip the scales in good's direction. And that will be my salvation. No, that's not the case. I'm going to have more to say on this when we get to 21 next week. So I I am preaching 21 next week, but there's some contrast here. So I'll come back and talk about a few of the details. But note that the final enemy isn't Satan. It's not Satan. It's death. Death itself is thrown into the lake of fire where Satan and the beast and the false prophet now all collectively are thrown. God's world is being fully and finally restored. And let me encourage you, this is what we get to read about now for the next few weeks together is is God's world being fully and finally restored the consummation of the kingdom the new heavens and the new earth so all that then leads us to the question why like why why doesn't Jesus at his return just end end it all why does he allow the beasts to come and why does he allow the birds to come and feed on the armies of the beast while the world watches as he establishes his kingdom but he doesn't Wipe out all evil just yet. He do, why, when he seizes Satan, does he not throw him into the lake of, the fi- lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet? Why? Well, in classic Revelation fashion, he doesn't tell us specifically. He tells us, I think, thematically. Jesus, uh, John, Jesus appears to be showing us through John's revelation both, number one, so two things, if you're taking notes. God's deep patience and our big problem. God's deep patience. This is why, I think, things happen this way. God's deep patience, our big problem. First, God is patient with you. Like, haven't we seen that throughout Revelation? Like, 
Jesus is writing to the church through churches through John. And time after time, he tells them, repent. Like, I'm de- I am delaying judgment upon you so that you will repent. And not only that, but God throughout Revelation is more patient than his people. Because his people throughout Revelation are crying out for vindication. They're saying, how long, O Lord, how long will you let this evil continue? When will you judge the wicked? And God waits. He delays judgment. Why? Well, the scriptures tell us that he's patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He wants to give opportunity for all who will hear the gospel and believe it, to hear the gospel and believe it. So I think this expresses God's deep patience. But second, and even more so, more to the point of revelation, to say nothing of the entire Bible, it shows us the problem, our big problem, one last time. He shows us the depth of sin in the human heart. You know, all of the... All of the um, different positions on the millennium. They all preach the gospel unique, in a unique kind of way. Right? That's one of the things when you're kind of sorting out which view do I hold to. They, they all preach the gospel in a unique way, but this is the way that I think premillennialism preaches the gospel. Because when Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of, and I, I alluded to this last week, but when Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of God's people going back to Jerusalem, reestablishing the temple, making reforms, what do you find? You find this belief It seems to be a belief, even from within Nehemiah himself, that God's people can usher in the kingdom if they create the ideal situation in Jerusalem. The right kinds of laws. The right reforms. Doing away with disobedience once for all. If they make the right reforms to create the most ideal situation, they can usher in God's kingdom. And by the end of the book, all of the reforms have been made. The word has come out. It's been explained to the people of God. Remember what happens? Nehemiah looks around after all those reforms and he can't believe his eyes. The sin has fallen upon the people of God again. And, uh, you know, he's pulling people's hair out. He's beside himself, right? And, and, and as a pastor, one of the things I hear from skeptics a lot is, yeah, but if Jesus were here in a glorified, resurrected body, right now, we'd all believe him. Right? If Jesus were here, we'd all believe. Like, this is one of the skeptical philosopher. Uh, Keith Parsons would, would always say this in his debates, like with guys like William Lane Craig. He would say, like, uh, you know, he's debating Craig on the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, well, if, well, if Jesus is resurrected, why isn't he here? Because if he, if he was here, I'd believe him. If, he, if he's here, he's saying, Keith Parsons, repent of your sin and his glorified resurrected body. Of course I'd believe him, right? And when you look at the end of Matthew, what happens? At the end of Matthew, it specifically said, there he was, after his resurrection, raised from the dead in his glorified resurrected body, mixed alongside of unregenerate, non-resurrected bodies, right? And what happens? People look at him, and they say, I'm pretty sure my cousin did something like this. You know, like, I'm, I'm skeptical, right? And here he is, right? So, so now... At the end, at the very end, Jesus demonstrates how deep the rabbit hole goes in terms of the human heart. Here he is, establishing an ideal world in which there's flourishing and goodness. He's seated on a throne, and yet people reject him. Robert Mounts, Grant Osborne, collectively voiced the main purpose. They say, it has been to make plain that neither the designs of Satan nor the waywardness of the human heart will be altered by the passing of time. And Carson takes it a step further. He says, supposing some were to argue, this is Carson, he says, supposing some were to argue, if we just had a just rule, if we just had a fair government, we'd be all right. We could withstand the devil and all his cohorts if things were structured properly. And for those of us who, who are tempted to find our salvation in politics, 
This speaks greatly to you right now, okay? If we just had a just rule, if we just had a fair government, we'd be all right. We could withstand the devil and all his cohorts if things were structured properly. And Carson says it may be that God will see to it for a while that things are structured properly. And when the devil is let free again, we blow it all apart again. In which case it becomes part of the vindication of God. That shows beyond the tiniest scrap of doubt that there's nothing finally that we can do to redeem ourselves. Even if things are organized by him for us. What is required finally is nothing other than the new heavens and the new earth. God taking decisive action at the consummation in a way that's irreversible or else we'll blow it again. He says this is a common theme in scripture. What's he describing? He's describing the Garden of Eden. He's describing all over, like, what's interesting about the end of Revelation is that it echoes the beginning of the Bible. And it almost tends to move backwards. Right? So it's like rewinding back to what we had in the beginning, except perfect. And here in 20, I find it really interesting that you have the Garden of Eden, you have the fall, in which God is on earth, walking with his people, in his kingdom. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, yet again. And just like Adam and Eve, being in his presence, having his rule, you know, their, their human heart is so corrupt that they sin, that we blow it again. Things are structured properly despite the good and right rule of God. We rejected him. It shows beyond the tiniest scrap of doubt that there's nothing finally that we can do to redeem ourselves. What's required finally is nothing other than God taking decisive action or else we'll blow it again. The statement shows us the great mercy offered to us at the cross of Christ. Amen that all views on the millennium believe that, those things. Shows us the cross of Christ in which Christ didn't just die for those who messed up out of poor circumstances or didn't take enough responsibility or would have responded differently if things were just slightly different. If they, you know, if they, if they would have just responded slightly differently, if they would have pressed in on the conflict. He didn't just die for, for people who blew it out of bad circumstances, but rather died for those who fell in the garden with his, in his presence. Like, we, listen, what this says is, Gospel Life Church, we uniquely need Jesus. Our friends and neighbors and coworkers who don't believe uniquely need Jesus. He saves. He has ultimate power over Satan. But in the end, he judges those who are apart from him. So this morning, if you're hearing this and you're not a believer in Christ, I just want to invite you. Believe upon his name. Trust in what he's done because I... I I think we all need to hear this. There is nothing finally that you can do to redeem yourself. There's nothing finally I can do to redeem myself. And this is exactly what we preach to each other weekly right here at the table. There's nothing finally that you can do to redeem yourself. So you preach to one another that his body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. This was the only means by which you can be redeemed. If you're a, a believer, this meal is for you because you're proclaiming that to one another here. If you're not a believer, observe. Ask questions. Think about what this represents. And uh, as, as, as we partake this together and, and come to the Q&A certainly and ask questions, but I invite you, come forward, take of the elements back to your seats with you and we'll partake together.